Investing in nuclear power, for instance, or in coal-fired power plants is just crazy, even economically crazy. Hey there, welcome back to Three Things. I'm James Glaive with another plain language conversation on the leading energy solutions to climate change. Let's meet today's guest. My name is Rana Adib. I'm the Executive Secretary of REN21, which is the Renewable Energy Policy Network for the 21st century. So REN21 is a virtual global network of hundreds of nonprofit, industry, and academic leaders all tracking the energy transition as it unfolds in every corner of the globe. Uh, it's a big network, but it's run by a small team uh, based out of the UN Environment Program headquarters in Paris. And its signature piece of work is the Global Renewables Status Report, a very detailed assessment of the state of the energy transition. I was very pleased to be able to sit down with Rana Adib recently in San Francisco. Just a quick flag about our conversation. We were able to get together at a recent conference and there was a fair amount of activity around us. Uh, so you will hear a bit of background noise. Uh, please forgive the occasional siren that appears. Enjoy. Rana, what is the long-term end game of REN21's work? The long-term end game is clearly having a sustainable energy system and energy future, which consists of um, three pillars, I guess. One which is energy efficiency, energy saving, so really reducing our energy consumption. The other one is producing uh, renewable energy, so clean energy, renewable energy, and uh, globally also ensuring that uh, all people have access to electricity and uh, clean cooking, for instance. So, um, yes. So you reference both energy and electricity there as two different things. You don't use those interchangeably, of course. No, no, exactly. I'm not only talking about electricity because when we're really looking at the um, energy consumption, so which is uh, then electricity only represents a small part of 20% basically of uh, the total final energy consumption. Mm. And um, heating and cooling represents 50% and transferred 30%. What we see today is that very often the global debate is focusing very much on the electricity part, even though there are areas where we need to really tackle um, the energy transition much more. And it's more challenging in these sectors. And why is that? For two reasons. I think one is there is less of policy attention. Um, so there is less of support to advance uh, renewable energy in these sectors. The other one is these are sectors which highly depend on um, fossil fuels mm -hmm. and there is uh, still globally uh, two to three times more subsidies on fossil fuel than support for renewable energy. I just want to recap that for those who might have missed that. There's two to three times more subsidies for fossil fuels globally than there are for renewables. Yes. Maybe somebody should explain that to the people who say that wind and solar will never survive without subsidies. No, actually, it will survive. So, for instance, in the power sector, and this is also why um, we do see that policy support was necessary uh, to really develop renewable energy power, um, for instance, and make it today the most cost-efficient solution. Today... Um, investing in nuclear power, for instance, or in coal-fired power plants is just crazy, 
even economically crazy because uh, renewable energy power, so solar photovoltaics or wind are cost efficient. Why are they cost efficient today? It's because uh, for a longer time there was policy support to really develop these technologies to create the right market conditions for an uptake so that private sector would also engage into this. And this is why today we have a solution which is a clean solution. And basically we need to learn from this um, from this success story and also replicate it in other NTU sectors. So for heating, for transportation, and um, very clearly in these sectors, the fact that fossil fuels is still being subsidized um, is adding another barrier actually to the uptake of renewable energy. So wouldn't it make more sense then to just remove the subsidies that are propping up fossils in those areas and let the market do its work more so than trying to subsidize renewables? I think there are two aspects. One is really removing the subsidies to create a level playing field. Mm -hmm. um, the other one is, however, also in particular in areas where innovation is still needed. So when we're talking about the transport sector, for instance, um, aviation, shipping, here we do see pathways, but there is still need to really develop and implement demonstration um, projects um, and look into what solutions are the best solutions. And here we clearly also need um, public support to do this. So the private sector is needed, but public support is needed too. So then what are you tracking then at REN21 on, with respect to renewables, the rise of renewables, the decline of fossils? What kind of metrics are you using to track that? Yeah, so basically what we're what we're doing at Rent and One is um, tracking um, market developments, so industry trends, gotcha. uh, policy and regulator frameworks. When it comes to investment uh, numbers, we're uh, working together with UN Environment and Bloomberg New Energy Finance, um, mm -hmm. who are tracking numbers, investment numbers specifically for the power market and for fuels. However, they are not tracking, for instance, investment in the heating market and transportation. Um, and that's really something, or in particular in heating also. And that's something which is uh, challenging because you need the right numbers to really also be able to illustrate that things are happening. And this is where Renton One is basically complementing these numbers, uh, building on an expert community. And we're tracking, we're also starting to look into investment numbers uh, in the heating sector, for instance. So then what is the data telling you about uh, where the current uh, investment hotspots are these days. Globally, it's driven very much by China. We do see that um, former advanced uh, countries, so Europe, for instance, uh, who was really uh, pushing a lot for renewable energies, where you had good regulator frameworks, etc., is stepping down. So investment levels in Europe have reached 30% in 2017 of the investment level in 2011. Wow, so that's a pretty major drop-off. It has dropped significantly, and this is something we're, we're not there yet. So today, renewable energy represents something like around 18% of the total final energy consumption, only 18%. In the power sector, 26% approximately. And uh, if we think about the future, we dream about a 100% renewable energy future. So we are very far away, and more investment level investment is needed here. And yet investment, at least in Europe, is declining. Uh, so why is it declining? 
Why is it declining? Because uh, because of stepping back of regulated frameworks, because mm. the power um, market uh, is basically, I think it's getting commercial. We really see that corporations are entering this. Mm -hmm. When we're looking, however, at heating, cooling, transportation, this is where really where the policy support is still needed. So the overall picture looks really promising for global renewable investment. It's rising. Where are the areas for improvement that you've identified? There is a real disconnect between the energy sectors. So heating and cooling and transport not reaching at all what we should be reaching. So only 10% of renewable energies in the heat sector, only 3% in the transport sector. As far as positive success stories go, China tends to hog the spotlight. But REN21 finds a lot of other success stories too. Very positive examples when we're looking um, at some developing countries. And here, when we're bringing, for instance, down the investment to GDP, then we see that there, we have uh, leading countries, which are Rwanda, uh, Solomon Island, Serbia. I can't recall the last time I read a Wall Street Journal story about the renewables investment in Serbia or the Solomon Islands. But I guess your point is that these are small economies that are showing the rest of us how it should be done. Exactly, exactly. Island nations and also developing countries. Mm -hmm. And what is interesting here, I think, is uh, when we're doing this uh, Renewables Global Stats Report, it's mm -hmm. about really also highlighting things which are not visible Uh, at the global level, because we can learn a lot about this. Mm -hmm. And also, these countries really have the opportunity to establish an energy system, which is the energy system of the future, because they are starting from a much lower level. So very often you do have, um, they, they have, for instance, um, an energy system. In Tanzania, there is only 7% of the population which has access to electricity. So here there is an opportunity to really build a decentralized energy system, which is building on renewable energy. So they have a unique opportunity, in other words, to get it right the first time. We need to build on these positive examples, on innovation taking place, business model, innovative business models. So when we're talking mini grids, uh, solar home systems, um, pay-as-you-go systems, so really using uh, the whole opportunities digitalization does present. Also in the linking between renewable energy and transportation, so there is really great opportunities existing here in the sector coupling. And uh, we need to tell these positive stories. What are some of the more persistent myths that people have about uh, or misunderstandings that people have about renewable energy that have been long ago debunked that you find yourself like a broken record uh, coming back to again and again? One is uh, the integration of variable renewable energy, so solar PV and wind into the electric grid. Mm -hmm. It seems challenging um, because uh, the production can vary and as a result the grid needs to adapt to this. So even a couple of years ago people were saying it's not possible to have high share of variable renewable electricity in the grid. Today we do have countries like Denmark, like Honduras, Costa Rica who have really high shares of variable renewable energy up to 60% and we are able to integrate them without having major storage capacities because there are technological solutions, there are market solutions um, to really bring in flexibility to the grid. And this is something where um, solutions do exist. We have the countries which are doing it. We have uh, regions doing it. 
Um, so Portugal, I think, reached in the beginning of the year, if I'm not mistaken, up to 80% of uh, renewable electricity on one day. But it means the grid is able mm -hmm. to do this. Right. However, there are other barriers. There is a barrier... It's still perceived as something which is complicated. Um, the good stories are not out there. And I think there is a real need to change the paradigm and to remove the myth. Activists would, of course, say that that information has been deliberately reproduced, misinformation, uh, by the incumbents, the fossil fuel companies that stand to lose uh, in the great energy transition. To what extent do you place that endlessly circulating myth uh, at their feet? I do think to some extent it is a factor. It depends very much on the sectors. You spoke about aviation, for instance. Very clearly, aviation and international shipping is still a sector where um, there is tax exemptions on fossil fuel. And this is uh, a political framework or a regulated framework which is not in favor uh, to develop new solutions. Right. That's very clear. And it also means that these players are certainly not supporting a change here. They have invested in long-term infrastructures. So when you're investing in a fossil fuel plant, a natural gas plant, a coal-fired power plant, we're not talking about investment which are short-term. So these investments need to pay back for on a longer term. And if you bring in an electric source like solar, PV or wind, which is today cost-efficient, it means that there is a risk or that mm. the former investment are not paying off uh, in the same way as it was planned. Right. Obviously, in these businesses, you do have attention. And that's also something where policymakers need to accompany the energy planning in a more yeah, long-term view. This program focuses on decision makers, policymakers, industry leaders, and so forth. But I always like to end each episode by coming back to the individual. What is the role and what can regular citizens do to accelerate the energy transition? Many things, actually. So I think uh, uh, shares in companies. Everybody, not everybody has a house to put a solar PV panel on right. the rooftop, but you can choose to purchase uh, your electricity from and your energy, and also heating, from renewable energy suppliers. They exist everywhere. The challenge of the energy transition is that we are talking about a good which is not visible. That's really something uh, where, for instance, civil society or consumer associations, organizations have a role to play to make it visible and change user behavior. I've been speaking with Rana Adib, Executive Secretary of the Renewable Energy Network of the 21st Century, shorthand REN21. Hey, thanks so much for speaking with me today, Rana. Thank you for the opportunity. And thanks for listening to another episode of Three Things. Heads up, uh, REN21 will release its Renewables 2019 Global Status Report in June. Uh, and you can keep up with their work in the meantime on Twitter via REN21 and on Instagram under the account REN21 Community. Don't forget to follow us at threethings.energy uh, while you're there. This is James Glave, your host, signing off. We'll see you again next time. Mm -hmm.